Amen. Thank you, Jordan. And Dan, thank you for covering me. I forgot to grab my microphone and all the craziness of our new schedule. Um, Well, as I was preparing for today, I got to thinking about organizations and different societies, different associations that we can all be a part of. You see, uh, often when, when, if you were to choose to become a part of a member of a certain society or a member of a certain association, there would be expectations for you. Maybe they would want you to advocate for something or provide education, or maybe they would want you to give financially to that cause. Maybe they just want you to be a part of the group so that they can extend the awareness of that group. Some organizations come with privileges, like newsletters. You can't get certain newsletters unless you're a part of that organization. Some organizations provide access to specific properties. Some organizations provide information about special events, discounts, and so much more. And so let me just give you, if you are interested in joining some bizarre organizations, here are a list of a few that might pique your interest. For instance... If you are into the appreciation and preservation of seaside piers, you might want to join the National Piers Society and advocate for the preservation of those aging things by, the body, by bodies of water. Or if you are blessed with the ability to tie knots, or maybe you've got a naval background, you might want to join the International Guild of Knot Tires. Or for those math- mathematically minded, You might want to consider the Dozenall Society of America in order to advocate for the base 12 mathematics system. Now, if you know what that is, great. If you don't, you're with me. I have no idea what exactly that is. For those with a sweet tooth or at least a business of candy making, you might want to consider joining the American Association of Candy Technologists, where they provide an environment where candy makers can collaborate. Interior decorators might appreciate the Wallpaper History Society. And for guys, Don, I think this is for you. For guys who can play Santa each year at Christmas time and have a genuine white beard, you might want to consider joining the amalgamated order of real bearded Santas. No fake Santas here, no fake beards. For those like me with a Scandinavian background, but you have to meet an attorney, you might want to consider joining the half Norwegian on the mother side American Bar Association. There are tons of societies, tons of us. There's traveling ones. There are sports societies. There are organizations for the preservation of the weirdest things, things like parishes and, and parsonages over in England. There are nerdy theological associations and so many more. And I bring that because I think some people, when they look at the church, they sometimes look at the church as being just the one, another one of those weird Organizations. There are certain beliefs and traditions that are taught, promoted, and recognized. And then there's that idea of membership. What does membership mean? What are the benefits? What are the responsibilities? Well, today, as we conclude our brief series on biblical community, we're, we, you know, we, we, today we conclude that, and we've reflected over the last few weeks on the idea that as a church, As people who have been saved by Jesus Christ, we are, first of all, united with one another through Jesus Christ. The next week, Eric Bass talked a bit about norms, about the fact that in our assembly, there are certain expectations of us. There are certain things that we should do and that we are more than just the building in which we occupy. We also learned that we are intended to be intimate, that there is a closeness that God intended for his people. 
involvement in each other's lives. And last week, we considered the idea that while we are saved at one point in time, we are a people in the process of transforming, that God is doing a work in each of us if we will let him. And he is not done. As Philippians said, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. And so today, we're going to conclude by considering the idea that we are yoked together. In other words, as members of a church, we are really members of one another. And as a result, Scripture has certain expectations for us. You see, our participation in the body of Christ essentially has two major implications. One is that we are in, in a certain position as members of one another. But also there is a practice, there are certain ethics in how we live. So if you want to follow along in your notes, let's begin by reflecting on the idea that we are positionally members of one another. We are members of one another. So often when we consider the idea of membership, people might think of it as though they are joining an organization or an association, as I said before, and there might be a standard for membership or certain dues that must be paid. And there are certain expectations. Several years ago, our son Zach was playing, playing lacrosse in the Alney Boys and Girls Club. And when you joined that club, you had to, of course, pay to be a part of the league. And he paid to be a, we paid to be a part of the team. And then you had to buy all the pads and all the equipment and things like that. But one of the expectations of the families in, involved in that association is that you had to sell goods, sell snacks in the snack shack. And so they wanted you to, to volunteer to serve a couple of hours over the course of the season. And if you couldn't serve, then they basically said, you need to pay more. Well, at the time, we didn't want to pay any more than the lot of money that we had already paid. So we volunteered our time. I don't know which was more expensive. But so we, we did that. That was just an expectation of that organization, of that association. But in the church, there is something a bit different. Sure, there are standards and beliefs to which each church uniquely adheres. For example, while there are similarities among all of the churches in town, there are also some big theological differences. There are also different governing structures in the way that the churches operate. But where things really begin to get different in churches is not, that we're just, is, is not that we're just members of an organization, but as Scripture tells us, we are yoked together as members of one another. In the New Testament, there are seven different times when that idea of being members of one another, members of the body of Christ, come together. And we're gonna, let me fly through a few of these for you. Romans 12, 4 to 5, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So, though many, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, for as in one body, for as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And again, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's just three of the seven. Did you know that four of the seven times that this is referenced show up in the book of Ephesians, the book that we're considering 
We've seen a few of those over the last few weeks. Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As, and we're going to look at this one in a few moments, Ephesians 4.25, but then skipping down to Ephesians 5.29-30, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This idea of being members of one another or of Christ has with it the connotation that we are working together for mutual benefit, for edification, for some sort of mission together. We're not just here to have fun. I hope there is lots of fun. We're not just here to advocate for Baptist theology. I hope we do that, but I hope that we're doing so much more in one another's lives and so much and, and beyond that. You know, there are a whole variety of reasons why people might begin to attend a certain church. Maybe it's the proximity. Maybe it's just the church that's closest to you. I know some of us can walk very easily to church. Some people join churches because they like the music. But as members of one another, we are also knitted together in ways that create interdependencies to the point where if one person doesn't do the thing that they've been called to do, the whole body suffers. And we are headed by, while we are headed by Christ, our gifts, talents, strengths, weaknesses, passions, and more work to unify and strengthen us corporately and individually. We don't necessarily get stronger because we grow numerically. We get stronger as a church because we mature individually and collectively, maturing and strengthening our bonds with each other and with Christ. And if we had been taking a closer look at the book of Ephesians, we'd be able to see some things that have been quite beautifully displayed. But as we begin to look at our passage for today, Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, we have to recognize that we have come to these comments, we have come to these encouragements, these challenges based on a, a foundation that Paul has been laying for the people of Ephesus. John Stott sets this up beautifully. He says, these chapters, these final chapters are a stirring summons to the unity and purity of the church. But there is more than that. Their theme is the integration of Christian experience, in other words, what we are, Christian theology, what we believe, and Christian ethics, how we behave. They emphasize that being, thought, and action belong together and must never be separated. For what we are governs how we think, and how we think determines how we act. So in light of who we are as the people of God and members of one another, and what we believe, we get to behave in a way that is fully becoming of God's people. So practically speaking, there are some ethics of membership. There are some ethics of membership. There are some things that we get to do. Again, this isn't so much the church organization or institutional membership, but spiritual membership with one another as a part of the body of Christ. And in these verses, Paul points out several commands, both negative and positive commands. Don't do this, do this, do this, but don't do that. But all of these, it's very interesting, all of these are guided by or, or founded on certain motivations, theological, biblical, and spiritual motivations that Paul lays out. He's not simply giving us random commands. 
And so each, so let's consider, first of all, in speech. Paul challenges us to speak truth and build up. We see this in verses 25 and 29. In the list of commands, Paul seems to point out that our language impacts our community. Look at verse 25. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And just as we saw last week, when we consider the fact that we have put off our old selves, Paul uses that same verb form as meaning we put off falsehood. At some point in time when we became followers of Christ, we were intended to put off forever leaving aside falsehood. But I think in our age of posting about our best or worst life on social media in order to garner some sort of attention... Truth can be a fuzzy endeavor. Whether it's exaggeration, half-truths, or straight-up lies, Paul is communicating that this, that falsehood, is unbecoming of a person of God. And then he gives a motivation for why why truth-telling is so important. He he, He says that it's because we are members of one another. Think about this. Think about the metaphor of a body. Imagine what would happen. I've heard that for people who get amputated, who have like a hand or an arm amputated. I met a guy years ago who worked in construction. He had a couple of his fingers chopped off, and he would always get these phantom pains. He's trying to scratch his arm, scratch his fingers, but their fingers aren't there. Imagine what it would be like if your hand constantly had this, your, your nervous system, your body is constantly telling your brain that your hand is on fire. It's burning. It's in pain. And yet you look at your hand, you think, no, it's fine. It's, I, I can touch it. It's no big deal. It's as though your nervous system is lying to you about what's going on in your body. And I think that's a bit what Paul is getting at. When we, as the body of Christ, allow falsehood in our lives, in our communication, it's as though we're communicating something different in the body. Falsehood undermines trust in the body of Christ. But Paul goes on and he says there's another thing that undermines trust, and that is corrupting language. Down in verse, 40, uh, verse 29, he said, let, co- let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to all those. So what is corrupting talk? Some translations um, refer to it as foul or abusive language. Another translation takes it more literally and calls it rotten. Let no rotten talk come out of your mouths. In, in, in Greek, that word is the same word that is used for fruit that has gone bad, rotten fruit. The decay, the stink, the unsightliness of rotten fruit is unappetizing and disgusting. That same word can also be used to refer to crumbling stone, corrupting. You wouldn't want to build a house with a corrupting foundation. So I think there are some some things like gossip would fall into this category, talking about someone with someone else in a way that doesn't build up. We might even refer to things like name-calling or belittling or being overly critical to someone. This is corrupting talk. It's not that we shouldn't correct. It's not that we shouldn't try to refine. We are to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. But there's a way to do it in a way that builds up rather than corrupts and tears down the entire body. And 
And Paul contrasts that with a positive affirmation to use language that is uplifting. And this is his motivation, that it may give grace to those who hear. Language that builds up is sweet and encouraging. So how is our speech? How is, are we building each other up or are we tearing down? Are we building trust with truth or are we ripping it apart with lies? Next, Paul addresses our emotions by encouraging the biblical ethic. In anger, don't sin. There are some of us who might see anger as something that is completely uncharacteristic of a Christian. You can't be a Christian and be angry. But Paul doesn't prohibit anger here. He seems to accept the fact that we will get angry. There are always things that will frustrate and infuriate us. The question becomes, what do we do with our anger? Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. So how can we be angry and not sin? And I think Paul gives us a pretty straight up answer. He says, deal with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on it. And and as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, how can we deal with it quickly? Because not every circumstance allows us to take care of our anger immediately. I think here's some suggestions. One is to give people the benefit of the doubt. Or as the characters in the movie Frozen have said, let it go. I realize that this can be difficult, but there are things that will happen to us in the car, at work, in the the hallway, at school, in the foyer of church, in community groups that will cause us to get frustrated and even get angry. And we may not be able to address the cause of that anger directly at that time. That poorly chosen word or that unfiltered facial expression directed at you might not require a full-blown investigation. The best response may simply be to let it go. A second idea is to take a deep breath and then respond in love. So often situations go from bad to worse when we react negatively. And that kind of response may require a beat to gather our thoughts and assess what's really going on. The third option is to seek godly counsel. Reach out to someone and, and say, you know, and, and be, we need to be careful not to allow this to devolve into gossip, but we can reach out to someone and say, hey, I need help thinking through this. How should I respond in this situation? There are so many times when I will take things like that to Danielle because I feel like she has been given the spiritual gift of wisdom and discernment. I'll take things like that to the elders and say, guys, help me think through this. And these are just some of my thoughts, but Paul gives us a little more help with that down in verse 31 when he says, let all bitterness and wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice. See, I think when we allow anger to fester, when we almost can't help but leave room for things like bitterness or feelings of resentment with wrath, wanting to get back at someone, if I only, I mean, imagine how much road rage would be calmed down if people would just let it go, right? Oh, I, they cut me off. I got to cut them off to get even. Or what about things like clamor and slander? We seem to get back at people with our speech. And when our, anger, when our anger festers, it's likely to affect how we talk to one another or those feelings of malice, that, that wicked feeling in us that just hopes that someone else gets hurt. Anger 
can do a lot of damage. And I think the point here is that our response to anger inciting situations should not lead to any of those things. And as with the other ethics, Paul provides a motivation. Give no opportunity to the devil. Some translations talk about a foothold or a place for the devil. You see, when we sin in our anger, we are inviting the devil to get in there and act divisively. We're giving him a place to to move about, to to pull us apart, to rip us apart. It's a bit like injecting poison into our bodies. And the result is an infection that's difficult to root out. Let's not make a place for Satan in our midst because we sin in our anger. Go ahead, get angry when it's appropriate. It is appropriate at times. The Bible talks about righteous anger. It is appropriate to be angry at times, but deal with it biblically and then move on. Paul continues, in addition to challenging us with our speech and our anger, he provides some encouragement in vocation, basically saying work productively. When I first looked at this list of vices, I, I kind of assumed that maybe these were things that were common in the, in the town of Ephesus, that things like lying, things like anger, things like stealing are, are, were common things. And a lot of the commentators basically said, no, it wasn't any different there than anywhere else. It's just human sinful nature that we don't like to tell the truth. We don't like to deal with anger properly. And sometimes we like a five-finger discount. So Paul encourages Ephesians 4, 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We can get into all sorts of minute considerations around stealing, you know, helping yourself to that little extra stuff at, at work or, or, or stealing time from this place or that. But it may be better for us to think through what does a thief do? A thief takes things. A thief is a taker. Are we known more as takers or contributors? Paul encourages us to work honestly for this motivation that we might have something to share with anyone in need, with anyone in need. I've been, I've been so encouraged by what I see in our congregation. You see, when it comes to things like benevolence, which today is the day, first Sunday of the month, this is a, a day that we typically give to the benevolence fund. But you guys have been so generous in the way that you've given. You've, you've worked hard so that you have a little extra to give, that we have funds available to meet almost any need that comes our way. So thank you for having something to share with those in need. For those who work in the thrift shop, thank you for sharing your time and talents and your bones with those in need. For those who are volunteering in Kids Connection, and I realize half of those volunteering, volunteering in Kids Connection are over there now, but for those who do on a regular basis, thank you for growing spiritually in such a way that you have something extra to give to the kids who don't have. I, I, you know, thinking about the musicians, about all of these guys up here who, who practice, who have worked on a craft for years so that they might have something to share with others of us who may not have any musical ability. For those guys who like to push buttons in the back and move faders, 
Thank you for, for having the minds and using the talents to be able to do that. For those of you guys who are deacons, thank you for the way that you use your very talents, whether it's plumbing or construction or passion for yard work or, or even just a mind for finance. Thank you for using, for contributing to the, to the health and the good of this body. In addition to these specific ethics about our speech, our anger, our work, Paul seems to provide a general ethic, and as one commentator even suggested, that this is the overarching motivation for all of the others, and that is, in general, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There are a lot of implications for this, to this encouragement. First of all, the fact that the Holy Spirit can be grieved points out to the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. We sometimes think of the Holy Spirit as it. The Holy Spirit is a person who has feeling. He's a being that has feelings. Jesus referred to him, for, referred to the Holy Spirit as the advocate or a counselor. He walks alongside us and resides within us. The Spirit, the spirit gifts us with spiritual gifts for the encouragement, edification, and expansion of his church. And Jesus said that the Spirit's role would be to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment, John 18, 8. He also said that the Spirit would provide words for us in our time of need. We see that in Mark 13, 11. So how is it that we can grieve the Holy Spirit? I think there are several ways. You know, when the Holy Spirit's convicting work is, convicting hand is in our lives and we refuse that, I think that's a way that we, that we grieve the Holy Spirit. When we refuse to use the spiritual gifts that he's given us, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And based on the context here, when we speak to one another in deceitful or corrupting ways, when we let anger fester and when we take rather than contribute to the body, I think there, there are places where we grieve the Holy Spirit. And Paul reiterates here that something he has already told us earlier in, in Ephesians, that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that means that we get to be in a relationship, a very long relationship with the Holy Spirit of God that's going to last for eternity. So Paul finally concludes with ethics in relationship. And this is a little bit outside of the, the passage that we read earlier, but he challenges us to walk in love. Ephesians 4, 32 to chapter 5, verse 2 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One commentator said that the command to imitate God is breathtaking to us, but it is a thoroughly biblical idea and it's not unusual in Jewish or Greek thought. You see, God has invited us into a relationship with him. And as we saw last week, he invites us to draw near to him. When we begin to fully grasp the depth of God's love for us, it should elicit kindness. It should elicit compassion, forgiveness, and love. And when we see the love of the Father demonstrated through Jesus Christ as he willingly laid aside his glory and took on human flesh in order to relate to our humanity, then willingly laid aside that flesh by dying on the cross for our sins, we should respond again by acting 
and kindness, love, compassion, forgiveness. Holding on to anger is not loving or forgiving. Lying is unkind. Unforgiveness lacks compassion. Walk in love as God the Father does. Romans 5.8 tells us that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Klein Snodgrass in his commentary says that love is the sphere in which the believer lives. Everything we do should be marked by love, just like Jesus did. One of the things that I often challenge couples with in their, in their wedding ceremony is to ask the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? And oh, how that's going to change in marriage over time. Jim and Annabelle, I'm sure, celebrating 73 years of marriage today. Congratulations. I would guess that love required something different of you guys in year one than it does in year 73 or than it did in 52. What does love require of us as the people of God? It may require some time. It may require sacrifice. It may require encouragement. Maybe it's repentance and forgiveness, compassion, grace, patience. What does love require of us? Life in community has implications and expectations. There are always going to be adjustments to make. There will be mistakes that we get to learn from or we get to overlook. I may have shared this before, but about a year and a half ago when I had the opportunity to go to Saudi Arabia, we were, as you know, camping, and I'm, I've never been a big camper. I've camped some. But I didn't realize this at the time that I committed a big camping faux pas, right? I didn't know that you're supposed to camp feet first one person and head the other way, right? You're supposed to alternate. The guys, uh, so the guys got to the tent first and they laid their stuff. It was like four in the morning when we got there. So I need a little bit of grace on that. But I laid my stuff out. I'm thinking I want my feet to the middle. I want my head at the edge. Both the guys around me had their heads right there. And then hmm, the next day I noticed one guy turned his mat around. I didn't know. They just, they just overlooked my foibles. They didn't confront me on it. They didn't get angry. They just said, okay, I'm going to turn around. That's not how you do I learn now. So now if we all go camping together, I know. And we're in the same tent. I know my head's going to be by your feet and we'll be all good. Um, but, in, but life in the body of Christ is more than just minor adjustments in camping. It's more than membership in a club that we can take or leave because we are members of one another. We are yoked together in ministry and, and in interdependent cooperation. We get to learn to act in certain ways. We get to lay aside our old selfish habits. We get to speak truthfully and in ways that build each other up. We get to deal with anger biblically. We get to work productively. We get to heed the Spirit's prompting diligently. And we get to imitate God by living lovingly just as Christ does. May we be quick to repent when we fall short and even quicker to forgive when others fall short in order to foster health in this body 
for which Christ laid his life down.